0: series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber.
1: Would you turn with me tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That ought to be a familiar sound. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to talk about the preparation for the test. We've been looking at the fact that there's going to be a test one day. And that test is a test of fire Which will test our work—that which we have done down here on earth. It's not a test to prove us; it's a test to prove our works. Has nothing to do with our eternal security. Has everything to do with our deeds and the reward that is one day to be ours. When I was in college, I loved college. I just hated class. And uh, we had about twelve cuts we could take in each class, and I'd take them all the first two or three weeks of the year. Just and then I had to go. You couldn't even get sick. I remember when they would assign a test. That, that didn't threaten me at all. Everybody in the classroom would get all nervous, not me. I knew I could wait till the last minute. I, I'm grateful that I have, my mind could grasp most of the things, and I knew most of the teachers and how they would give the test. I remember one night in a world lit class, I was 84,000 pages behind in my reading. <laughs> That's the night before the final exam. And a friend of mine and I went down to the library and got into the master plot books and we began to develop funny stories about each one of these things so we could remember them. And we laughed until I cried. I mean, we would make up the funniest things, just anything to help us remember the main tenets of the different books we were supposedly to have read. And the next day in the classroom, we walked in, they had separated us. He was on one side, I was on the other side for obvious reasons. And when we started taking the test, I began to laugh. He began to laugh. I mean, we had taken out of the library, right out of the files, a test from this particular professor, and we had pinpointed him on every single question. Even though we were 84,000 pages behind, I got an A minus. My friend got an A minus in the class. Now, you can do that in school down here on this earth sometimes. But when it comes to the test we're talking about in Scripture, You don't wait till the last day and cram so that it might be something that you can pass because we don't know the day and we don't know the hour. And one day we're gonna stand before God and everything of our life that has been built will stand before him. There's a house that's being built the moment we get saved. The moment you receive Jesus Christ into your life, the foundation is laid. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. Paul says to be careful how you build upon it. Look at verse 10. He says, according to the grace of God in chapter three, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But then he says, but let each man be careful how he builds upon it. The narrowed context of 1 Corinthians 3 is referring to the teachers and the preachers that follow him. But all of us are included here because once the foundation is laid by faith in Christ Jesus, that foundation begins to be built upon. And every choice we make, everything we do in life builds upon that foundation. And one day standing before God, it will be tested as to the materials we have used to build that foundation, that house. Look in verse 12, it tells the materials that we have choices of which to use. It says in verse 12, chapter three, now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, that's in a class now by itself. Then over here is another class. He says wood, hay, or straw. Now, the precious stones, the gold, the silver is that which is not consumed by fire. That's important. That must be what God was allowed to do through us. But the wood, the hay, the straw is that which it is consumed by fire, which must be that which we in our own flesh did for God or did whatever. It's got to be flesh because that is something that is consumed. And the fire of God's presence, it will test our work. Verse 13, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. As we saw the last message, it's like standing in his presence and the fire has always been used in the Old Testament as a symbolic of God's presence. And we stand in his presence, everything that was not of faith in our life all of a sudden is consumed and all that's left is that which we allowed God to do through us as we were willing to obey him and walk, surrendered to him in this life. You know, the great gracious thing about this is as long as my heart's beating, if I have, because of the flesh, built a wall that's crooked in this house, because <laughs> it says work, not works, so he's referring to one building. If I have, then I can go back and confess that, repent of that, and even though sin leaves a scar and the wall may still be crooked, at least it's now been rebuilt by the grace of God. And as long as I'm living, I have the cross, and as long as I'm living, I have the blood, and I can rebuild and do whatever's necessary. But one day, that's over. As soon as my heart stops and I see Jesus, whatever's there will be tested by fire. And the only thing that will remain is that which has been done by faith, and enabled by His grace, only that which is of faithful obedience and surrender to him. You know we've had people leave our church before because we emphasize obedience and surrender. We really have. They told me that to my face, as if they don't want to hear that part of it. Tell me all that I am in Jesus. Tell me who I am and whose I am, and that's so important to understand. But don't tell me what I'm responsible for. You see, we don't want any accountability. But the reason we preach it and preach it and preach it and preach it is because one day we will be held accountable as we stand before the Lord Jesus. In verse 14, here's what he says. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, in other words, after the fire has tested it, he shall receive a reward. But he says in verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. Now there's going to be a test that's going to come one day. Now listen, again, I want to point out the fact that this test is not a bad test. Don't live in fear of this because the word documazo is the word used as we discussed in our last message. And documazo means that, that which God does to prove what is good about something. Pirazo is that which God does to prove what is bad about something. But this is good. God wants to reward you. He wants to reward me. And that's something we should be looking forward to. The only reason we would not look forward to it is if we're not willing to live the surrendered life he's asked us to live, enabled by his grace. And if that's the case tonight, you have the altar. You could get on your face before God and say, God, I'm sorry, i repent. And the blood cleanses and the spirit of God immediately enables and you're right back into building like you ought to be building. But when you live rebellious to those things of God, obviously that house is not gonna be what God wants it to be. Now, let's talk about this reward a little bit. You take the word reward and you run it through the Old Testament and the New Testament, particularly the New Testament. I didn't go really much in the Old Testament, but if you go into the New Testament, it gives you some clues about how you can know that you're putting the right materials into this building. There's some attitudes, there's some things God creates within you that are automatically clear as to the fact that these are the right materials. Let me just share a few things with you and you might grab on to some of them. First of all, is that when you're living by faith, surrender to him. One of the things you can expect at different times in your life is persecution. Now that word persecution is the word that means people pursuing after you. They never seem to go away. They don't like you. They don't like what you stand for. They don't like the God that you serve and therefore they're constantly on your trail. The picture's uh, of an old coon dog on a trail at night. I won't go into all those things. I've shared that over the years. I so Don't worry, I won't do the coon dog impression tonight. But it's like a, a coon dog on a trail at night. And you can hear him off in the distance and it just won't go away. Everywhere you go, they're always on your trail. That's the word for persecution. Look in Matthew chapter five, verse 11 and 12. And let's just see if there's a reward for people that are persecuted for living the faith life, for surrendering to Christ, or letting Jesus be Jesus in you, depending on his divine enablement within you. Matthew chapter five and verse 11 and verse 12 are very clear as to what God says. He speaks there to his disciples and he says, blessed are you, and the word blessed is makarios. It means completely, inwardly, spiritually satisfied. Are you when men cast insult at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil falsely on account of me, he says, against you. Rejoice and be glad for the... Now look, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets Who were before you. Now, the next time that you seek to live the godly life and you seek for the right materials to be put into this house that'll one day be tested and you are persecuted as a result of it, say, Praise you, Lord. I'm in good company and there's going to be a reward for this. Persecution is a good signal that you're doing it right, not that you're doing it wrong. Light and darkness never get along very well. Now, the kind of obedience that God requires out of us is not the obedience so that men around you can see it. Now, obviously, they will see it. It's not for their benefit. It's for his benefit and for your benefit. And so, therefore, when you do what you do, you do in the privacy of that that life that's hidden with him and and you obey him. You don't go out and announce it to everybody. This is something between you and God. It's out of a love relationship. You know, there's so many things that I would love to share with you about the, the friendship and the relationship that Diane and I have. But I'm sorry. That's something that's very private and something very, very, very precious to she and I. And that's the way it is with your walk with God. You don't come out and say, oh, guess what, I did this, guess what, I did that. No, no, it's not that kind of thing. You're obeying out of love, you're honoring a relationship. Now I say this because Jesus brought this out. Watch out, he warned the people of his day, watch out that you don't parade your acts of obedience. Look in Matthew six and verse one. Matthew six and verse one. Now you know that the right materials are going in here when you don't have this overwhelming desire to go out and and flaunt your obedience unto God. There are many people that do this. Now, obviously, people will know that you're obedient, but it's not because of your flaunting it and wanting their approval for it. In verse one of Matthew six, beware of practicing your righteousness before men, and then he gives the motive, to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no, what? Reward with your Father who is in heaven. Be real careful about the whole motive of everything that you're doing. And then he lists several things there in Matthew. First of all is in giving of alms. In verse two, he says, when therefore you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. You see, when you do something like this, this alms there means to do a benevolent work for somebody. To, give a good, uh, to do a good deed for someone, to give money to somebody who's poor or whatever. It always has a benevolent sense to it. And he says, when you do that, don't announce it. If you do the applause that men will give to you, that's your reward. Now, I don't, <laughs> there are many times that Diane and I over the years have done some things and I've just wanted to go tell somebody, but it was Brother Spiros who sat me down one day. and said, Wayne, be careful, son. Do you want your reward here or do you want your reward there? So what you do, you do out of obedience, but not to flaunt it in front of man. And that's what he warns about the Pharisees in that day. Then he talks about prayer in verse five of Matthew chapter six. And when you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites. What what do the hypocrites do in those days? For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. People walking by and said, aren't they spiritual? Look at those people pray and they've got the reward. That was their reward right there. You see, when you pray, that's in that closet. That's in that time alone with God when you wrestle with the things that you're wrestling with and when you rediscover your peace with him and when you walk with him. Not that man can see it, they'll see the result of it, but so that God might be loved and honored in your life. Then fasting, he mentions in verse 16 of Matthew chapter six. He says, and whenever you fast... Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. (laughs) Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Basically what Jesus is trying to show us is that when we obey him, this is something between us and him. And we're doing it because we love him, knowing that we're building a house that will one day be tested. And we don't do it to flaunt it in front of men. You know, this is something that has really blessed me. Because do you realize that all those secret things that you have done out of obedience to the Lord that nobody ever knew about that he keeps and knows about and that one day will, will, will cause that house that you're building to stand like, like you couldn't have caused it to stand before? Because God knows those things. That's so encouraging to me. Many, many, many other times that we've said yes to the Lord but nobody ever knew about it. That's all right, he did, you see. And that's the way I walk with him. Ought to be. When walking by faith, your heart is turned to acts of benevolence, as we said earlier, towards others. Particularly those of the family of God. Look over in Mark chapter 9, verse 41. And you begin to see that God creates within you a compassion for others and a love for others. This is not what you're doing as much as what he's doing in you. And it's a good way of knowing that the the house is being built correctly. If you have a, a cold heart toward the needs of others, look out. The house you're building is not one that'll stand. In verse 41 of Mark chapter nine, it says, for whoever gives a cup of of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. In another gospel, it says a cup of cold water. Now in their day, what that's saying is when you go out of your way to minister to the needs of somebody, particularly in the family of God, particularly those that are righteous and, and and in God's kingdom, what they would do in that day is that the lady, the mother, the woman of the house would go down to the well early in the morning and the water was cold and she had put it into a pitcher. She'd bring it back and set it up and then all day long they'd drink out of that water. Well, to give a cup of warm water was easy because the climate would warm that water up as the day would go by. But to get a cup of cold water meant somebody had to go all the way back down to where the well was and draw that water and bring it back. And the idea is not just giving a cup of cold water, but going out of your way to minister to the saints of God, to minister to those that are around you. And I'll tell you, this isn't something you do as resulting of the flesh. This is something God creates within you as you're walking submissive to him. And when you have this desire to minister to the family, to minister to those that you become aware of that have need, this is God working in your life. And evidently the house is being built correctly. Living by faith causes love to be produced by the Holy Spirit. I guess that's the greatest thing in the world that you can see. And that love is going to be tested. And one of the greatest ways it's tested is when you're able, enabled by the grace of God to love even your enemies. Look over, if you would, in um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 46. Just a verse there, then we're gonna to turn to another passage. Matthew chapter 5, and verse 46. And the bottom line here of loving others is brought out. By the way, loving your enemies does not mean adopting their ways or, or going along with what they do, but it's being so committed in your heart to do what is spiritually necessary for them, you're willing to pay whatever price that's necessary. In Matthew 5, verse 46. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? He says, do not even the tax collectors do the same? In other words, that's nothing to that. God's love is beyond loving people that are good to you. And then go over to Mark chapter nine, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter six and verse 35. Luke six and verse 35. And again, he brings this out so clearly. When love is there, even for people that treat you wrongly, And that love, not being a mushy, mushy, I'm just gonna look over everything. No, that's not it. But a commitment in your heart to do what is necessary spiritually for their best benefit. In Luke chapter six, verse 35, he says, but love your enemies and do good and lend. Now watch this, lend, expecting nothing in return. Boy, he didn't live in America. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. That's that's one of the tests of whether or not you're building the right kind of building. It's when you can love even the enemies that come at you. Living by faith causes our attitude to be affected. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 17, Paul has something specifically to say about that. And he says in verse 17 of an attitude that he has. And this attitude plays a huge role in determining what kind of materials is going into this building. He says, For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. If I do it without any pressure on me to do it, I do it because I choose to do it. That's telling me something that evidently this is the spirit of God. This is a result of putting my faith into him and God has caused this in my life. Again, in Colossians chapter three, verse 23 and 24, he brings out that same understanding of attitude of how God even changes an attitude towards what you do. He says in verse 23, whatever you do, do you work heartily, not for men, he says, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So when you go to work tomorrow, you're not working for men, you're working as unto the Lord. And you do your work heartily as unto him. And that's a sign that the right materials are going into this building. That's the spirit of God working In your heart. When you you are filled with the Spirit of God, there's a boldness that you have that you didn't have before. A boldness to speak forth the things of God. In in, uh, Hebrews, it says in chapter 10, verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. The word confidence means that willingness to step forward and to speak out and be bold in what you say. And he says that's going to have a great reward. Living by faith, you see, is the norm of the Christians that believe in Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to be full-time to have a reward. And by that, I mean this. You have to be full-time. That's what Christianity is. But we've made this term, laity and clergy, and that's messed everybody's mind up. Are you in the ministry? You know, <laughs> well, yeah, but so are you. I mean, it's not like there's clergy. Throw that thing away. We're all in the ministry. The moment you receive Jesus Christ and you start living a surrendered life, you're in the ministry. And you're a missionary, whether it's across the street or around the world. And so everybody gets in on this reward. Everybody's building this house. This is not just for preachers, this is for every believer. He says that, I think, very clearly in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Look over there. Look who he's talking to slaves. (laughs) Actually, that was 80% of their workforce because so he's talking to those who, I guess, go to work. I mean, that would be a good application of it. But on Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, he says slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. So he's talking there, not to preachers. He's talking there to the workplace. He's talking about to the slaves. Again in Ephesians chapter six and verse eight, look over there. It's all encompassing. Anybody that's a believer, there's a reward for that believer if he will build a house by faith while he's living here on earth. Ephesians six and verse eight, it says, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. He just opens it wide open to anyone who's a believer. We're all building a house and we're to build it by faith. When we live obedient lives in the circumstances God has allowed for us, there will be a reward. You may not be called upon to do great things as others are called on to do, but whenever you obey him, surrender to him, saying, Jesus be Jesus in me, for that will be a reward because you're building the right kind of house that will stand the test of his fire of judgment. Well, in verse 15, in 1 Corinthians chapter three, you see the reverse of this. How do you know that, that you're building the right kind of building? God gives you a heart to be benevolent towards others, a love towards your enemies. It, he did, it's, all these things are involved and you begin to get an understanding you're going the right direction because this doesn't come from the flesh, this comes from God. But in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 15, here's the other side of that. If any man's work is burned up, he shall also suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through In other words, Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, if you're going to keep on living like you're living, friend, I'm warning you, you're going to stand before God one day. Yes, you'll be saved. This is not to judge you, but it's to judge your works. And you're going to be very ashamed. There's not going to be anything left, you see, that God has done through you. You know, when you drive through Virginia, by the way, that's one of the most beautiful states in America. (laughs) I was born and raised there, and I love the Shenandoah Valley. And you drive up through there, And you see some of those old plantation homes, many of which have burned, whether by lightning strikes or whatever. And all you see standing is just a chimney here. And then another house down the road, you see just a chimney standing. All of that, which was so beautiful to everybody that drove by has been consumed. Only the chimney is left standing. And I think of that every time I think of this passage. Standing before God one day, all that's of the flesh All that I was unwilling to repent of and unwilling to seek God's forgiveness and and walk in His grace is just going to burn immediately in His presence. And the only thing left standing is that which I was willing to commit by faith, that which came out of a surrendered life towards Him. That's a sobering thought. It ought not be a scary thought, but it's a sobering thought that we need to remember there is integrity in the Christian life. Now, the time that I have remaining tonight, here's what I want to do. I've just been praying about it. And what I want to do is go back to chapter one and show you the steps that we can take to assure that one day the building will not burn when it's tested by fire. How can we, what steps can we take? And I've told you over and over again, I'm going to keep referring back to this. You're going to get tired of hearing it. I'm sorry, because you can't get around it. It's in the grid. It's in the teaching of Corinthians. If you'll go back and live this way, you can be assured that you don't have to fear the coming of the Lord and you don't have to fear standing before him because you know, because you know that you've sought to live a life by faith. All right. First of all, is this right here. You start point one, as far as what 1 Corinthians one tells us, you begin by living according to your eternal purpose. That's step one. We said it this the last time, we're going to say it again. There's one eternal purpose for us and that is to live separated unto him as a vessel through which God can use. Remember back in verse two of chapter one of 1 Corinthians, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. If a man or woman, boy or girl, that's a Christian would start right there. I'm separated unto God. I didn't separate myself unto him. He separated me unto himself. I'm his. He owns me. I'm his possession. Then God, what do you want me to do today? How do you want me to live today so that you through me can can be seen to others? That's the key. That's step one. Every day that you live, every morning that you wake up, God, I have but one purpose in my life. The word sanctified, you know that word now. Well, hopefully it means to be set apart, put in a class all by itself. The thing that distinguishes us between other human beings on this world is that we love this book. We love the Lord of this book. And as we love him and we obey him, then people see that we're different. We're human beings, yes. And we have faults, yes. And we have a body of sin, yes. But somebody lives in us and we have purpose in our life. And this begins to set up our witness to others and it begins to start the process of making sure you're putting the right materials in the house that we're building. We must get very practical with this. In everything, give Christ first place. Look over in Colossians chapter one, verse 18. Very precious verse here. In everything in your life, give Christ first place. Colossians chapter one, verse 18. It says in verse 18, he is also head of the body, the church, And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. He wants first place in everything. He's the head of the body. And we have been separated unto him. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16. And it begins to show you how you work this thing out. I mean, let's be real practical with it. If I want to make sure my house will not be consumed by fire when I get to heaven one day, and I look at the Lord Jesus Christ, and I stand in his presence, then I've got to understand my purpose in life. I've got to separate myself unto him. I've got to learn this and give him first place in everything. In Ephesians 5, verse 16, it says, making the most of your time, that word I'll share with you in a moment, because the days are evil. That making the most of is a Greek phrase that means to purchase, purchase. It's made up of two words, ek, out of, agorazo, which means to buy or purchase, to purchase out of, redeem the time. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're going to purchase time, which is all we all have, and if we're going to live separated unto him, if we're going to give him first place and everything, how are you, what collateral are you going to use to purchase time? The only collateral I know of is choice. And so I have choices I can make all day long, and they're going to come up. The choice when I get on I-75 to run over that lady or just pray for her. <laughs> I've got a choice to make the choice that I have to make when something comes up in my life and I wanted to do something else. The other day, uh, I wanted to go. Bill Hollander. I don't know if y'all know Bill very well, but Bill has a thing for the University of Tennessee players every year. You know how I love University of Tennessee. And I've gone to it for years and years. But Saturday, after Equip Conference was so full and, and, and demanding on our time, I had studied Saturday and I had just finished the first message and I knew, and I don't like to be on Saturday studying, and and I knew I had another message to go and I was wrestling. I was already thinking I was going to wear my white shorts. I was going to wear my Tennessee, my sweatshirt. And I was thinking, where's my hat, my Tennessee hat. At the same time, something inside of me was saying, Wayne, you got to preach tomorrow and you need this time to be alone with me and to be in my word. Now, Wayne, you got a choice to make. And all the time I was thinking, I knew, I, I know, I know Holy Spirit, but I, uh, go Vols. You know, I'm just thinking that the whole time. And my flesh is risen up and I'm thinking, wait a minute, give him first place in everything in your life. And finally I came down to it. If I had to make a choice that is eternal and not temporary to satisfy my flesh, I'm going to have to stay home and stay in the word and finish out what God has put before me. And it was not easy. And folks, you've got to learn to make those choices in life. Enabled by the grace of God, it all stimulates out of your love for him. Yes, but I want to tell you something. These people who say it's so easy to do that, to me, I don't understand them. Because my flesh rares up on me and makes me feel like an idiot sometimes. The choices that I make to deny the flesh and do what God wants me to do. Let's put it in another realm. When it comes to the meeting, the financial needs of our church, Wayne, you're going to get off that. No, I've been cranked. The Last week just got me fired up. Man. Hey, folks, this is right where we all live. <laughs> and I told you last week, or sometime this week, look in, you, look in you and say, Lord, how much do you want me to give? If you would just ask him, he'll tell you. And then the next thing you do is do it. And you do it in the grace enablement that God gives to you. And that's the way you learn to live. I love that. I love that. Just let God direct you. And it's as simple as you can put it. And you're living this way. What you're doing without realizing it, you're building a house in heaven. You're doing something that you can't see right now. And you don't want to see right now because if you did, that would be your reward, as he told us. You want to see it one day when you stand before him. And everything that goes into this house is redemptive in its nature. And I'll tell you, folks, it's a, it's a blessing to be able to live that way. That's what God's called us to do. We have one purpose. That's to get involved with him, attach ourselves to him, put Jesus as first place in everything, and learn to redeem the time. Learn to make the proper choices in life, enabled by his grace. This is not something legalistic. This is not something fleshly that you can manufacture. It's just learning to be submissive and obedient to his voice when he speaks to your heart. And if you're not in the Word of God, you wouldn't even know what I'm talking about. So the Word of God is, all these things are built into it. Separate yourself unto God who has separated you and learn to put Him in first place and learn to make the proper choices to redeem the time. And you won't be afraid of standing before Him one day. You will not be afraid. The most ashamed you'll ever be is when you realized how wise His wisdom and leading really was in your life. That's the only thing to make you ashamed, to see the eternal aspect of what God has for you. Secondly, Once you get involved in his purpose, attaching yourself to him, I'm I'm, I'm sanctified, I'm a saint. I'm not my own. I can't live like I want to live. I live the way he wants me to live. Then you learn to live in that attachment to him. It says in verse two, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. What he's talking about call upon, it means to depend upon, to live every day depending upon, Upon him. I think what happened to me in, in the recent conference that we had, God re spoke that to my heart. Wayne, it's in me. It's in me. It's in me. It's not in the people. It's not in anybody else. It's in me. Depend upon me. Call upon me, Wayne. Period. That's it. And from then on, you've got it solved. That's your attachment to him. That's in those choices that you are making It's in the present middle sense. And so you call upon him as a lifestyle and of your own choice. You know, Look over in Romans chapter 10, verse 12. I want to show you something here. I want to show you what you tap into when you call upon Him. What you don't tap into when you don't call upon Him. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 12. Tremendous verse here. Verse 12 of Romans chapter 10 says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all. Now look at this. Abounding in riches for whom? For all who call upon him. One of the things I think happens so often in our lives is that we move away from this. For whatever reason, we move away from that intimacy of just depending upon him, calling upon him. And we don't tap into the riches, spiritual riches, that God has for us. You can't live attached to him if you're not going to call upon him, if you're not going to depend upon him. I remember one year when I was in Kentucky, there was an old man who was in the hospital, an older man, Mr. Butler. He's probably dead now because he was pretty old at that time. That's been years back. And they asked me to go to the hospital and pick him up and bring him home. And so I did. And I went over to pick him up and he was so feeble. And I helped him to the car. And on the way, the wife had given me some money. She said, stop by Hardy's and get us something to eat. That is really... Made me look forward to going to get him because <laughs> I was hungry. So I brought, went by Hardy's and we were on the road in Frankfort, Kentucky. That's the state capital and nobody lives in Frankfort. Everybody comes into Frankfort and leaves Frankfort. But boy, you don't want to be on that highway anytime around lunch or four o'clock or early in the morning. It's kind of like Atlanta. There are certain times you don't get on that road. Well, I was right in the middle of the lunch hour traffic and I knew I was going to be in trouble. I looked over at him. He was cold, sweated, broken down on his face. He was pale. and I thought, oh my goodness, and so I just, in my heart, said, Lord, I'm in a jam here. Now people say you can't pray and ask God for these kinds of things, they don't understand, folks. They don't understand. They don't live attached to it. They don't understand what the Christian life is all about. And I said, Lord, I need some help here. You're gonna to have to do something because I, I can't get out on the traffic. There was no light there that I could depend upon. And so I got the food and set it beside me. He's there, doesn't look good at all, breathing real heavily and raspy. And so we pulled out to the road and I looked to the right and there was a light down here. And there wasn't a car between me and them, and I'm thinking, "Wow." And I looked to the left, and there's a light down there, and there was not a car moving between me and them. And it was wide open for almost a quarter of a mile, not a person on either side of the road. And if you don't think that's not a miracle, you go to Frankfurt, Kentucky someday, and you get on that road during lunch break and you'll find out what I'm talking about. And it was like God just said, "Watch this." Whew. And I know Mr. Butler kind of looked around as we pulled out on the road. He said, boy, you sure were lucky in that, weren't you? And I didn't say anything. In my heart, I was thinking, thank you, Lord. Thank you that we can depend upon you for everything. That's our problem, folks. If you're not walking with him, no wonder all the doubts, no wonder all the frustration, no wonder all the confusion that gets into your life. And what happens is you're not building the right kind of building this way. You come back to what a Christian really is. You depend upon him for everything, every single thing in your life. And when people look at you and say, you're stupid for doing it, just smile right back at them because you know something they don't know, that you've been set apart to him. He lives in you to be your sufficiency and you can depend upon him for everything. It's ridiculous to think that a believer would depend on any other thing other than Christ Jesus, drink from any other well than drinking from that well. To do so is to cheat yourself out of everything God has given to you. He says that in Corinthians. He says in verse four, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him. And I love the statement that Bill made this past week. He said, listen, if God loves a cheerful giver that's living attached to him, that understands the principles of what it means to be a believer. He said, if he loves a cheerful giver, then where in the world are they? And you can say the same thing right here. If God's people are to live in the riches of Christ Jesus, then where are the people living in them? And that's the whole point of writing 1 Corinthians. They're upside down. They're not living as if they're true believers. And it's for that reason, they're building buildings and are not gonna stand the test of God's judgment one day. Well, it's critical to realize this. To live according to his purpose, which is to depend upon him, Thirdly, is to know that you cannot do it in your own strength. You've got to know this. This is bottom line. This is basic. You've got to understand you cannot do it in your own strength. How many people say, hey, preacher, don't pray for me yet. I'm going to go a little bit further. I think I can handle a little bit more of this Then I'll call you or whatever. As if they can do it themselves. What is it Paul wishes for them in verse three? You think this is just a greeting? Hey, it's the inspired word of God. Boy, when you look at it, Now you begin to realize what he's saying. He says in verse three there, 1 Corinthians chapter one, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder as much as we've talked about it, if we just did a test right tonight and we went row to row to row to row and said, what do you think grace is? And you wrote it down. And we took the answers, brought them back up here. Had your name, address and phone number on it, what would come just out of the people that are here tonight? Do we know what grace is? Brother Wayne, it's the unmerited favor of God. (laughs) Yeah, that's basic. If you don't understand that, forget it. You're not going to go any further. Yes, we don't deserve any of it. But what is it? It's the transforming, enabling power that God places within us when the Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. Now, why would He put the Spirit in us if we could do it ourselves? That's why he told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, he said, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. Grace is what I need to deal with the sin in my life. And when there's a problem with my flesh, I must go and confess it before God. But he doesn't just remove it because the, the, the potential of sin continues to stay. He not only removes it, he fills me in that area and recreates me in that area. And where I was bitter he makes me forgiving. And where I was, was proud, He makes me humble. It's Jesus being Jesus in me. That's the work of grace. In Romans 6 and verse 14, He says, You're no longer under law, you're under grace. But when you go back and look at that chapter, what does it mean to be under grace? It means I'm a brand new person in Christ. I've not only been set free from the penalty of sin, I've been set free from the power of sin. I don't have to live under it anymore. I don't have to say yes to my flesh anymore. I can say yes to him because he lives in me to give me that opportunity. And that's where grace begins. And if you don't understand that tonight, no wonder it's mechanical. No wonder it happens that way. You see, and what happens is you start building a house that's not gonna stand the test of God's judgment because you're not operating in that which God says you ought to operate. You're not living under the principle of his grace. And so Paul, when he wishes grace upon them, oh man, how desperate we all are for the grace of God. Well, we must live according to his purpose. We must live attaching ourselves to Christ. We must be aware of what it is that we cannot do or we'll never build the buildings that'll stand the test of God's judgment. Fourthly, we must pursue the peace of God because in that same verse, he says grace And peace to you. Why do we need peace? Now, folks, let me talk about this for a second. Look over Philippians chapter 4 just for a second. Philippians chapter 4. I'm gonna show you something. Romans 5 1 says, We already have peace with God. That's established whether you ever feel it or not, you have peace with God. Now, what does it mean to have peace with God? It means you've let your sword down, you've dropped your sword, you're not fighting God anymore. When you came to God, you came on the terms of surrender to him. You laid the sword down. And therefore, you have peace now with God through Jesus. Jesus paid your sin debt. And now there's nothing standing between you and God. And you're not going to fight him anymore. And you have peace with him. But there's not only the peace with God. Here's what we're really looking for. It's the peace of God. And look, look, look and see what Paul says of how you get it. Verse 6 of Philippians chapter 4. And if you don't have the first things that we've talked about tonight nailed down, this doesn't make much sense. But if you have those first three things knocked down, yes, this makes a lot of sense. He says, be anxious for what? For nothing. Let me ask you a question right now. No, don't raise your hand. I'm not going to do that. But I wish I, sometimes I wish you'd just go on and be honest with me. But I wonder how many people are sitting right in this service right now. And anxiety is eating you alive. Because something's happening in your life and you don't know what tomorrow is gonna bring. But you came to church to find some solace. You're not gonna find it in church. You find it in Christ. And he will give you the peace of God. You're already at peace with God, but it's the peace of God, that divine serenity he puts within you that no man can ever explain. It's beyond comprehension. He says, be anxious for nothing. Then he tells you what to do. He says, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, now thanksgiving always implies that which already has happened. If you've got a bitter bone in your body, forget it. You haven't understood this verse yet. So go back and repent of something that you're bitter about. Because until you can be thankful and see God's hand in it, you can't go much further. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And look at verse seven. And the peace Of God watch which surpasses all comprehension man cannot understand it. shall do what it shall guard your hearts and your minds where's the problem coming from most of the time it's coming right out of what we think or what we feel it's going to stand guard over your emotions it's going to stand guard over your mind it shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus I'll tell you what when that peace of God overcomes you and it only comes when you're willing to trust him, bring everything to him by prayer and thanksgiving all your supplication, your whole attitude is to live separate unto him, depend on him for everything, regardless of what's bombarding your mind, you push that out and you just cling to him and something supernatural happens and it's the peace of God that overflows you. And you couldn't explain it if you had to. And that's how you can live every day. And that's how you can also know the house that's being built is the right one. Because God and God alone can produce that peace in your heart. There's a man from Bulgaria that was at our conference over in Europe. He'd been in prison about six or seven years. And they said when they first put him in there, he said he was so afraid. And he said they locked him in, sh- in shackles on his ankles and his feet. And he was chained to a wall in a cell room. And as he was standing there, just terrified at what would happen, he said he began to hear some, a voice, a song, a song came from somewhere. And he said it, for a while he thought somebody was playing music. And he said, this really happened. He said the song was inside him. And he said it was a song he had grown up with. And somehow it was roaring back in his mind. And he began to sing to the top of his lungs that song that he had grown up with. That great Christian hymn that he had grown up with. And he said as he was singing, God's peace so overcame him that the man in the room with him and had the little Uzi standing in the room with him, he said, suddenly it dawned on him, he was free. (laughs) And the man holding the gun was in bondage. The man looked at him and said, what in the world is wrong with you? And this is his own testimony. We heard him give it, his own testimony. And he said, sir, I'm free. He said, you're not free. Look at the shackles on your arms. He said, oh no, spiritually Jesus has set me free. I'm free, I'm free. And he witnessed to the man and won the guard to Jesus Christ peace of God. and Folks, I tell you, if you're just going to check out and say, God, I know this is good stuff, but you know, not now. I think I'll do my own worrying for a while. Number one, you're going to be one miserable individual, but number two, you can be assured that what you're building will not stand the test of his judgment one day. And until we repent of this kind of living, until we come to the altar and bow down and confess it before a holy God and repent of it, and step back into the truth that we know has set us free, then what happens is we live miserable lives and then one day we stand and the whole building burns and that's, that's something that, that we don't need to have to experience. But we need to come back to the basics of what the Christian life is all about. Well, I'm out of time. You read the rest of it. <laughs> Guarantee I'll come back to it over and over and over again. You know, In my family, we've only built one house in our life. That's enough. (laughs) How many of you ever built a house? Would you raise your hand? (laughs) Boy, isn't it something? And that was during a time that Diana was going through a lot of illness and could not help me much. And she was really the architect of the design. I mean, Diana has a gift that God has given her to, she can decorate, she can put things together. I mean, just beyond, if if she dies and you come to see me, I guarantee you it'll be the worst thing. You I'll have four bare walls with a chair in it. And it's great that she's in my life. She brings color. She brings beauty. She's able to do all these things. But during this period of time, I was the one who had to actually (laughs) build that house. Not build it with my hands, but call all the shots as to this goes here and this goes there. And we continue today to live in the mistakes that I made. It was incredible. If I could have just gotten to Diana and involved her some more into it and let her, brought her into it, that house would have been beautiful. We'd probably still be living in it today. But me, calling the shots, trying to say what this needs to go here and this needs to go there without Diana's help, I made a mess out of the whole project. And you know, you can shift gears with that unless you're doing it God's way, friend. No wonder the confusion. No wonder the frustration. We are believers been set apart unto God and we are to live setting setting ourselves apart, attached to Him, obeying Him, pursuing grace and peace in our life. If I'd have gone on, looking forward to the future promise that He's coming again. And these things are to continually, continue to guide and to motivate and drive our life. If they're not, number one, we're miserable. And number two, when we stand before Him, the house will burn. Not us, we're saved, but there'll be no reward. We will suffer loss, is what the scripture says in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 3. My plea to you is this, if there's something not right in your life, run to the cross. There is forgiveness, cleansing, mercy to bear up under the consequences, and grace to transform you in that area of your life so that you can get back to the building, the right materials, so that one day you'll not be ashamed when you stand before Jesus Christ. As long as our heart is beating, there's an opportunity to correct. But one day when we see Him, that's it. And what's been built will be tested. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.